0: Sundays were for walks in the rain Uh on low windswept hills just north of windswept seaside Brighton where we lived. Or they were for expeditions. My mother was a great visitor of churches, Norman churches, medieval churches, Gothic cathedrals like York Minster. Castles, too, were a common destination, Arundel Castle was close to Chichester Cathedral, a twofer hard to resist for my mother. The cathedral was built around 1100 to replace the earlier cathedral built in 681. They were a short yet interminable drive along the Sussex coast from Brighton. There's a tomb in Chichester Cathedral made famous by Philip Larkin's poem, An Arundel Tomb. The poem discusses the journey through time of the carved figures on the tomb. They lie side by side, Eleanor of Lancaster and Richard Fitzalan, 10th Earl of Arundel, holding hands. When they died in the late 14th century, Larkin writes, They would not guess how early in their supine stationary voyage the air would change to soundless damage, turn the old tenantry away. How soon succeeding eyes begin to look, not read. Rigidly they persisted, linked, through lengths and breaths of time. Snow fell undated. Light, each summer, thronged the glass. A bright litter of bird calls strewed the same bone-riddled ground. And up the paths, the endless altered people came. The endless altered people. I am different from my parents. I am different from my younger self. I am different from my son. At the turning of the decade, it seems suitable to look back at our history, personal, public, maybe even paleontological. At my age, I have a slightly longer perspective than impatient back of the car me. As any parent knows, and every child comes to know, in growing up, the time passes slowly in its days, but oh, so quickly in its years. Alice Fulton, in the poem Becky just read, talks about these scales of time. She looks back at her younger self, but also at the long swell of time, deep time. Lost girl playing hopscotch, I will do what you could. Name of father, son, ghost, cross my heart and hope. While the sea's jewels build shells and shells change to chalk, and chalk to loam, and gold wheat grows where oceans teetered. That gold wheat grows in Illinois, where both my wife and my mother grew up. There, the ancient seabed is so flat that Ridge Road runs where the land rises by ten feet. The white chalk cliffs near Brighton are made from the sea's jewels, tiny marine animals and sea-living algae. Today, we'll try together to stretch our thoughts about time, but we shouldn't rush into it. We might pull a frontal lobe or something. Um, (laughs) Let's let's do some warm-ups. Here are some stray facts to mull over. A little time back, Orville Wright lived to see the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Further back, the patent for the fax machine was issued before the first covered wagons set off on the Oregon Trail. The room I lived in in college for my senior year predates the Aztec Empire. (laughs) That is the truth. As a guide to our time travels, I'd like to share a measuring tape for time, a a speed to use to translate time into distance. The the one I've chosen is the speed at which DNA replicates, uh, one millionth of a mile per hour. From here to the piano is a step of 80 days, back to when I was still 56. West along A Street to Cotner takes us back to when those first atomic bombs fell. Walking to the railroad yards on the west side of town uh, brings us back to the 14th century to Richard and Eleanor. The language was different then, but the people were the same. They loved and held hands, and their personalities, quirks, and humanity were recorded by Geoffrey Chaucer in incomprehensible, mental English, in the Canterbury Tales. Let's go a little further. Next stop, York, 50 miles west, 2,500 years in the past. Things are different, but people are still the same. There are people all around the world, including on the inhospitable northern coast of Norway. In the cave now called Kol Hole of Hell, near the whirlpool Moskdrauman, north of the Arctic Circle, people are gathered. They've sailed here in boats. The cave is only accessible from the sea. From the 150-foot-tall entrance, the cave narrows and darkens. In flickering flame light, they are gathered. We know that they Painted, in pigment the color of blood, human figures, dancing, leaping. I think that they painted and played the bone flute, and since they were human, sang as they danced. Let's keep going, and going, and going, and going. Let's walk across the Rockies, across Russia, and Europe, in fact, right around the world. Now it's three million years in the past, and the first apes to walk upright live in what is now Ethiopia, among them a female named by us, uh, Dinkinesh, which means you are marvelous in Amharic, or Lucy. (laughs) Dinkinesh is not human, but is conceivably one of our ancestors. The next bit is a little longer still. We went round the world to get back to Dinkinesh, but we need to go a little further now. Just a minor interplanetary jaunt to the moon and back. Um, It's now 55 million years ago, and we are at the beginning of the Eocene epoch, almost as far back as the end of the dinosaurs. The name comes from the ancient Greek, eos, or dawn. It is a time when the earliest representatives of many modern mammal groups first appear as fossils. The first bats and primates. The first hoofed animals, ungulates, that later diversified into rhinoceroses, pigs, deer, horses, cattle. The first proboscideans, Uh, That's woolly mammoths and elephants to you and me. (laughs) But if you are thinking Archie, who stands 14 feet tall in front of Morrill Hall, you should scale down your imagination. The first Proboscideans were about the size of a fox. In fact, all these new modern mammals were quite tiny. Now, on the extended version of this tour, we would nip over to Venus to reach the time of the first life on Earth, three billion years ago. But I've been advised that due to insurance issues, this is as far back as we can go. <laughs> <laughs> One last look, Now, then we'll all turn around and start walking back. As we say goodbye to the tiny rodents, tiny bats, tiny marsupials, and tiny primates, you might be wondering why it is so darn hot. Well, we're in the middle of the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum. Global temperatures have risen 10 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit in the last 50,000 years. There's no ice at the poles. In fact, the poles are at temperatures we would consider subtropical. It rains a lot. It's like hot Brighton. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's turn back to the future. We've got to retrace our steps to the moon and back. Um, we'll skip Dinkinesh on our way forward. We'll walk almost around the world but there are two important steps before we're safe and snug in our own time. First, I want to stop in Salt Lake City. We're only 880 miles from home, about 100,000 years in the past. Humans have been around for a long time now, with big brains and cooking, which allowed them to have big brains, and hand axes. But there's been a recent revolution. Out of Africa have come humans looking just like us, thinking, as far as we can tell, just like us, carrying the iPhones of the day, needles, awls, mortars, rope, fish hooks, and on and on, and talking in languages as sophisticated as Phoenician or Finnish or French. And there is no evidence that they were any different from me, or you, or Albert Einstein in any way. I've taken you into a trip, into, on a trip into the deep past, because the deep past has a mirror image, the deep future—not only the future of our great-grandkids, but the long future history of Earth and as applicable, humanity. Some people are certainly already thinking about the deep future. On Olkiluoto Island in Finland, I practice that pronunciation a lot, um, an, ex- an experiment, I, you can go online and get a, hear a Finnish person say that name. So. Um, an experiment in post-human architecture is being a built a tomb intended to last 100,000 years, as far forward in time as humanity's first language is in our past, a tomb more secure than Fort Knox or the crypts of the pharaohs, a tomb to hold nuclear waste. Its purpose is to protect our descendants from the consequences of our choices. Our last stop is very close to home, the pious parking lot. Remember to park over there starting next week as you are able. (laughs) So why here so short a time ago? To hear a story about language. Twelve years ago, the Oxford Junior Dictionary brought out a new edition, some new words and phrases appeared for the first time, like broadband and cut and paste. <laughs> and the following words were dropped. Acorn, adder, bluebell, bramble, conquer, dandelion, fern, heather, heron, ivy kingfisher, lark, magpie, newt, otter, raven, starling, weasel, willow, wren. Because these words were no longer in common use by British children, and of course broadband was. This is not simply a misstep by a cranky publisher, not just language change, but a reflection of change on a larger scale. In the last five years, the number of kingfishers in England has dropped by 30%. The tree sparrow population there is now 1 20th of what it was when I graduated from high school. These massive declines are attributed mainly to changes in farming practices but the story is repeated all over the globe. Wildlife and wild lands are under pressure from farming, from deforestation, from what we politely call habitat loss. 98% of the mass of land animals on earth is made up of people, cows, and pigs. The day I was born, it was about 25%. 10,000 years ago, it was one-tenth of 1%. We continue to burn fossil fuels, releasing 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. This continues to raise average temperatures around the globe. During the 50,000-year warming period at the beginning of the Eocene, just one quarter of a gigaton of carbon dioxide was released annually. At our current rate, we'll accomplish in 1,000 years what nature took 50 millennia to do. Crocodiles and palm trees in northern Norway were the way of life in the early Eocene. We might be in for a touch of habitat loss ourselves. Here we are enjoying beautiful weather, 13 years warmer than average for January 5th. In Australia, disaster has been declared in response to catastrophic bushfires People are fleeing bushfire-affected areas in Victoria, New South Wales, and South Australia, faced with conditions so dangerous that firefighters are unable to defend entire towns. In Canberra, the capital of Australia, the air quality reading on a scale where 200 represents hazardous hit 7,700 due to smoke from fires. Last year, it was Tasmania the glories of which appear on the walls of our gallery, thanks to Bob Egan. Fires threatened thousand-year-old forests, globally unique rainforests, mesmerizing alpine heathlands. Our species' choices have become, for the first time in the history of the world, geologically relevant. In recognition of this, it's been proposed that 1945 mark the end of one geological epoch, the Holocene, and the beginning of a new one, the Anthropocene, named after us. Geologists of the future, human or not, will be see clear markers in rock strata, a peak in radioactivity, decimation of fossil diversity, Markers of astoundingly rapid temperature increase. Now, I don't want to be too much of a Deborah Downer. (laughs) There is also good news. People all across the world are taking action. The countries that now generate more than 60% of their electricity from renewable resources include Angola, Austria, Brazil, Canada, Croatia, Denmark, Finland, and Iceland. They have 100%. Coal use in the U.S. has decreased by a factor of two in the past decade because of the compelling economic case for renewable energy. Big companies like Google and Apple are changing their practices. The electric and hybrid car market is booming. There is a mechanism, carbon taxation, that would be an efficient and effective way to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. It's late but it's not too late. However, it's not enough to cross our hearts and hope. We need to fix it. Still, we don't need to fix it alone. Let us follow the kelp-haired lead of Alice Fulton's younger self. Let us war dance toward the deep future, one leg, two leg, arms treading air. As Linda Underwood advises, let our souls be played out like sticky string into the world, and let's show up. I leave you with these words of Robert McFarlane, a nature writer, Spelunker, and co-author of The Lost Words, a book written in reaction to the elimination of Acorn from the Oxford Junior Dictionary. To think in deep time can be a means not of escaping our troubled present, but rather of reimagining it, countermanding its quick greeds and furies with older, slower stories of making and unmaking. At its best, a deep time awareness might help us to see ourselves as part of a web of gift, inheritance, and legacy stretching over millions of years past and millions to come bringing us to consider what we are leaving behind for the epochs and beings that will follow us. So may it be, for we are not our own.